0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Controversies in Neurosurgery uh, podcast. It's a pleasure uh, for me, Roshna Ali, to welcome you with my co-host, uh, Dr. Sat Oliveira. And it is an absolute pleasure for me to introduce our guest speaker today, Dr. Elad Levy, who is a professor of neurosurgery and the chairman of the Department of Neurological Surgery at the um, State University of uh, New York at Buffalo. Uh, the topic of our discussion today will be uh, the use of flow diverters uh, for the treatment of aneurysms. So, welcome, Dr. Levy. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you. Um, pleasure thank you. to be here. Um, so, just to get the conversation going, what, what, in your opinion, are some of the indications for the use of flow diverters for aneurysms, as well as any? Uh, level one evidence that
1: supports their use. So, I really think they've been a game changer when they sort of came out in the, uh, you know, around 2008, 2009, when we did the um, Puffs trial. I was a co-author of that initial trial. And I think over the past decade, not only has there been more entry into the space by other, other competitors, um, but the evolution of the technology um, has really changed the landscape. So your question is, what was the indication at first for? And it was really those inoperable aneurysms that didn't have a good surgical or really a good endovascular solution. So that's sort of what the concept was. Um, and the Puffs trial showed that you can get relatively good aneurysm obliteration somewhere in the mid-70s for these inoperable aneurysms. But as the second generation flow diverters came out and as Other companies entered the space that had flow diverters with different properties. Um, As any technology that advances, the indications also sort of evolved. And now the indications, I think people are using them for wide neck sidewall aneurysms, aneurysms that you may not want to clip. Um, But certainly, certainly for aneurysms that potentially could be coiled or clipped, people are using flow diverters. And that's potentially another discussion point.
0: In your practice, how do you find yourself picking a certain flow diverter? What are some of the criteria that you're
1: using? So, fantastic question. So, when, so I think we'll start with when am I going to use a flow diverter? So, I think for most dual trained neurosurgeons, if the first part is this is going to be a sidewalled aneurysm, so it's not going to be a bifurcation aneurysm, it's going to be a sidewall aneurysm that doesn't have a sump, for example, a fetal posterior communicating artery with with an aneurysm, if there's a large outflow vessel, flow diverters tend not to work because there's a sump and they won't thrombose. So a large sidewall aneurysm with a wide neck. If it has a narrow neck and it's surgically accessible, we may clip it, we may coil it. So surgically challenging or inaccessible, something that doesn't Um, that has a relatively wide neck, so it can't be coiled alone. So now you're locked with either stent coiling or balloon remodeling or flow diversion. So in general, if the patient has no contraindications to dual antiplatelet therapy, it is not a ruptured aneurysm. It is a wide neck sidewalled aneurysm that's surgically challenging. For me personally, those are the best indications for the use of flow diverter. Your second question, which type, what, what are the properties? Um, some, some of them come in longer sizes, and we, we know from some of the papers, um, we published a paper problem or, or panacea, we don't want a lot of overlap. So um, depending, do I want length? Do I want visibility? Do I want conformability? Each of the different flow diverters without getting into the specific companies sort of offer something. Pipeline, for example, can be modeled very well. You can push on it, fluff it, pull, push on the ends. Um, where some of the other ones, once it's deployed, what you see is what you get, which also has some advantages.
0: And you briefly touched upon uh, this in your, in your earlier answer, the contraindications to using uh, dual antithelial therapy. Now, you're diving into a little bit more of a controversial topic. Um, what are your thoughts on using these devices in ruptured aneurysms? Uh, in patients with the
1: Bragmine hemorrhages? Fantastic question. So about a year ago, we published our series of um, unruptures which had nuisance bleeding. And so people often underestimate the complications in unruptured aneurysms from dual therapy. And the rate in about 200 aneurysms was somewhere around 30% nuisance bleeding. What's nuisance bleeding? GI bleeding that needs treatment G, uh, nosebleeds, joint bleeds. Also, people have to put off elective surgery if they're on dual antiplatelet. You fall, you need a hip or a knee. So, there are these issues. Those issues are dramatically escalated when you're dealing with a ruptured aneurysm. Now, you have a patient that may need a ventriculostomy, central lines, trach, all these other ICU interventions, which become more challenging on dual antiplatelet therapy. So, that sort of is I would not say is a never, Um, it is in the armamentarium, but it's certainly not a first or second line choice. I'd much rather use another endovascular technique that doesn't require something in the parent vessel, like a web or coil or balloon remodel or clip. If none of these options are reasonable, um, we can talk about this if you want, how to use flow diverters in the ruptured setting, but I would caution our listeners that is certainly not a first or second line option today.
0: So looking looking into a future scope, uh, how do you see them becoming potentially um, even a first line therapy for ruptured aneurysms? What changes would have to for that to happen?
1: So recent advances um, in surface modification have made some of these technologies uh, more potentially amenable to the ruptured setting. So for example, the SHIELD technology is one example where um, they've shown both in, in, uh, in several in vitro studies where platelet aggregation is significantly, is significantly diminished due to the surface modification. So there are current studies, there have been studies in Europe, there are current studies that are uh, beginning or ongoing in the United States that are looking to shorten the duration of dual NF platelet therapy moving towards monotherapy personally, um, and I'm involved in this study, it is not, we're not ready for use um, in subarachnoid hemorrhage. I believe that with the current modifications, we're somewhere around six weeks, plus or minus, for dual antiplatelet therapy, but the data is not out by any means. So again, this is just a best guess. But as we continue to understand surface modific- not modifications and how platelets aggregate on these nitinol stents, I do believe there will be a time in the future where we can deploy stents safely in a ruptured setting without requiring dual antiplatelet therapy.
0: That's wonderful to hear. Seth. Um, I'm just wondering if you had um, any questions for Dr. Levy, but yeah, i yeah, so, so the, the entire
2: time. No, that's okay, it's, it's, you know, I was just listening, it's been kind of fascinating and someone who doesn't do a lot of vascular, um, but, uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, beyond subarachnoid hemorrhages, since this is a, podcast about controversies um, what are some other controversial uses, or you know kind of borderline uses or where you know some people might you know hesitate to use them and other people would where's kind of other controversies in this area
1: yeah i think what we're seeing now as these devices continue to get more supple more conformable more navigable and smaller for example um, the fred jr i've talked about pipeline i'll, I'll talk about other technologies um, they can be put into three two and a half three millimeter vessels so you know coming into an acom or an a1 a2 junctional aneurysm which most people including myself would probably clip um, people are now starting to flow divert aneurysms that are distal to the ica terminus near the bifur- near an mca bifurcation if it looks more of a sidewall an a1 a2 junctional aneurysm that is the controversy. Am I- it's being done. I don't think there's enough data to say that this should be a first line um, intervention, um, especially if it's amenable to clipping, but it is being done, it's being done safely with good results. So I would, I would uh, encourage listeners out there or people that are involved in the vascular space to let's collect some data so, uh, and explore the use as we get into these smaller vessels pericolosal vessels, for example, I've seen flow diverters being put there. Those are very small. Mm -hmm. To your listeners, as the vessel size decreases so that the metal to artery ratio is relatively increased, the the chance for thrombosis increases. We do know smaller vessels have a higher rate of thrombosis when you deploy uh, uh, stents, especially stents like flow diverters, which have a high metal to artery ratio. So we really need to understand is this the right, while it's being done, is this the best solution for aneurysms in a more distal location?
2: And I was also going to ask, you know, as a non-expert in this area, you know, in terms of perforating vessels and other, you know, branches coming off, uh, I know that there's differences with some of the different stents. And does that come into play, as you, particularly as you're starting to talk about smaller vessels?
1: Uh, certainly, I think that's a great question. And I always uh, encourage neurosurgeons to, Uh, look at literature from other disciplines that sort of overlap. So what I've learned from the coronary literature is SBO, side branch occlusion. So when they're stenting coronary vessels, that's a different disease. It's atheromatous disease. You can snowplow plaque into these side branches, shut these side branches off and cause Mm -hmm. potential ischemia or lose some tissue. Um, in the brain, obviously in, in, in atheroma, if you can do that for side branch occlusion. So if you have disease, so if you have a, um, an aneurysm in an atheromatous vessel, for example, and there's atheroma near the ophthalmic or there's a- atheroma near the anterior choroidal, it is rare, but this, but people need to think about this. We, I personally have lost branch vessels near aneurysms when the vessel is inherently diseased. Mm-hmm. Great question. It's not common, especially, but but in, in diseased vessels, you may see that in single digit percentages.
2: And then I guess, you. So, oh, go ahead, Rushna. Please go ahead, Seth. I was just gonna say, you know, I, I guess that, you know, you kind of mentioned that oftentimes these are challenging open surgical cases. And, you know, are, are the, certainly some of the things that are treated with the, the proximal ICA, uh, flow diverters, I know oftentimes require pretty complex surgeries like trapping and whatnot, you know, and I was wondering if you kind of comment, you know, that these are obviously there's challenges and there's new technology coming into play with these, but the, the alternative for open surgery can sometimes be daunting as well.
1: So I know this is a controversy session, so I will throw you out a controversial statement. I will tell you on this podcast, I feel there is almost no role in an elective setting for ophthalmic artery aneurysms to be clipped anymore. While I used to enjoy them, you have to expose the neck for proximal control. You have a lot of clinoidal drilling. It is a process where we can flow divert an ophthalmic. It's a perfect case for flow diverter. And we do them awake, that's also controversial. Um, and we've published the safety of doing them awake. It is truly a 30 to 50 minute case in um, most of the time, for an ophthalmic aneurysm done awake, unruptured with a flow diverter, we can never replicate that surgically. Again, two incisions, clinoidal drilling. The days of clipping ophthalmic aneurysms in an unruptured setting should be over.
2: There we go. I sound we got it out of you.
0: <laughs> so, you, we have it that first. <laughs> So you mentioned Dr. Levy that, uh, you know, as the experience grows, um, the indications are likely to grow. Uh, people are going to push the envelope and uh, start, start using these for indications that haven't been uh, very common before. So the first question for you about this is how do we become more data-driven? So that we can objectively compare, you know, uh, indications. Objectively compare different technology that's out there, different stents that are out there, and determine what is the best to be used in the surface situation. Kind of come up with some best practice guidelines, almost.
1: So, a lot to unpack. Great questions. So, one of the things we do here. In Buffalo is every patient gets uh, either data entered either we're looking at them prospectively in a trial so we try to screen them for a trial or if there if, if there's no trial we collect their data and then try to pool data with other high volume centers um so whether and and I do believe there's a lot of power in registries multi-center registries with retrospectively collected data but um, you know, we have to your point. We have to get beyond anecdotal evidence or single center evidence, um, and sort of pool what we're doing and examine them on a routine basis. And only then can we get better. So, you know, is flow diversion reasonable for distal sidewall aneurysms? Maybe I can tell you we've had success, but we've also had thrombosis and complications, and we sort of then wonder: should we have clipped this? Um, But the only way we push the field and advance the field and work collaboratively with industry because we can't advance the field without the biomedical engineers is to collect the data and openly share this data.
0: And in that same vein, you know, we want to promote progress. We want to promote innovation. But at the same time, we want to be cognizant of, you know, Misusing or overusing a technology, which, as you mentioned, might not be suitable in certain uh, cases, how how do you counsel your peers, your trainees, your fellows? How do you give them that sense of what is the right way to to approach these things?
1: I think you hit the nail on the head. I think flow diversion right now um, it, it's a very fa- it's a fast growing technology. It's a fast adopting technology because it's not that in the, in the, in the scheme of vascular uh, or endovascular or open vascular techniques, it is not that challenging. So I feel that coiling is becoming a lost art, putting a catheter in an aneurysm and put in, putting coils and balloon remodeling is becoming a lost art. Even narrow necked aneurysms now are being flow diverted because it's sort of a one and done concept. Lay, lay the stent, lay the flow diverter and get out. And so as we train our fellows, I always caution, you know, continue to hone your skill sets, continue to use all the tools at your disposal, and never force a technology. So I think the key is if you want, maximal, uh, if you want a maximum benefit and minimize the complications, never force a technology beyond what it was meant to do. So again, in a ruptured aneurysm, you know, if you don't feel comfortable clipping it and it is a clippable aneurysm, maybe you have a colleague that can clip it or or get other eyes on it. Um, but again, I, I caution, never push technology beyond what it was meant to do because that's when you see complications.
2: Yeah. And I was also going to ask, you know, for for someone in a community center, what's sort of, you know, the the ideal kind of aneurysms where you might think about referring a patient to a a tertiary center that that you know would have that expertise
1: Um. Uh, so very good question also so there are many aneurysms that now can be done in sort of a community hospital and there's some fantastic community interventionists and community surgeons um and several of the fellows that are trained either at our institution or others go on to have thriving community practices i was actually just on the phone with one in uh In Michigan, who's doing a fantastic job for their community. Um, So, patients that should be referred to a tertiary or coronary center. So, even beyond the vascular piece, multiple and severe comorbidities. Is this patient, if you do things under general, is this patient too dangerous sort of candidate to do under general? Mm -hmm. Is their vascular access complicated with severe tortuosity and atheroma in the aortic arch? Um, from a clipping standpoint, do they, you know, do they have um, clotting deficiencies or clotting disorders? So these are all the things that we say you got to put into the soup that go well beyond the aneurysm. And the most important thing is, you know, and I say this in a complimentary way, know your lane, stay in your lane, know what you you feel comfortable doing, but there's no reason that if you feel uncomfortable or this aneurysm is outside your comfort zone, the best thing to do is send it to to a center that feels comfortable doing it. Um, You know, we've seen aneurysms from all over this nation and and international, um, and certainly some of these are very challenging and certainly they don't all go well. Um, But we feel that, you know, with the the, uh, tools and the amount of resources that you have in tertiary and coronary centers, at least the physicians are giving the patient the best chance of success. So that's what I would also tell your listeners. Um, everyone has their sweet spot. I tell the fellows and the residents, stay in your sweet spot, not your sweat spot. If you're just uncomfortable, move it on to somebody who is comfortable.
2: That's great. So
0: speaking of, uh, you know, training future fellows, future leaders, um, especially coming from your institution, um, for for some of these uh, techniques that are going out of vogue. Um, and aren't being used as consistently, but will probably still have some role uh, in the future continue to be used in some capacity. How do you you balance that? How do you give your trainees the full scope of training?
1: That's a great question. So I think if you're going to hold yourself as a vascular uh, or endovascular surgeon these days, it does require that focus through residency and, and an extra year. Um, I do think every chief resident should and deserves to sit at the table and clip aneurysms. So when we have fellows, it's for example, a dual, dually trained program. And if a fellow comes in, they often, we sort of take the chief resident and they can do as much as they can through the case. And when they have sort of reached their limit their technical limit and that obviously is a moving target. We move the goalposts as they scrub more and more. Um, Then usually the fellow will come in um, and then at some point the attending if needed. Posterior circulation aneurysms that go to surgery, bypasses, those are fellow type cases. Sort of straightforward um, anterior circulation aneurysms are we sort of say our chief level cases and obviously endovascular cases that are going to the interventional suite are. our our fellow cases. But there's so much to learn, and I think fellowship adds a dimension um, that that residents really benefit from because they're closer in training. They sort of understand where they were a year ago. And that type of um, sort of peer learning, I think, really uh, augments growth uh, and also sort of expedites uh, growth for the residents.
0: You've been involved in several clinical trials, uh, not just with assessing flow diverter technology, but, but many others too. Um, if, and every trial has its own limitations. Um, so two part question. Uh, first, if you could highlight some of the more prominent limitations of the, of the trials around flow diverters. And then um, if you had the um, ability and uh, funding to design the ideal trial to to test this technology, what features would you focus on?
1: Great question. So trial limitations, and whether it's ischemic stroke, um, the Swift Prime or Puffs, or other ones, what are the biggest limitations? One is we handpick these centers, right? So this isn't, the guy who's out of fellowship year one, these are the highest volume centers um, who can understand sort of the rigorous inclusion and exclusion criteria. So we're picking sort of the best of the best patients with very rigid um, inclusion criteria and hopefully some of the most experienced uh, interventionists or, or surgeons. So is that fair to say that the data that comes out of that is reproducible? Probably not. So when we say that this device has a six percent complication rate and a eighty or ninety percent efficacy, that's probably not the case for the general, you know, for the general populace. So then, what do we do? We like post market studies. So once things get FDA approved, then we want to do a post market registry, and potentially look at all comers. So could would I what trial would be the best personally? I would love to take users, just say, okay, we are going to take all end users. If you want to use this device once it went through a phase one and phase two, you have to then prospectively enroll this patient. We are not going to put a cap on the age, and I'm not going to put and I'm not going to define the aneurysm because I want to know how it's used in the real world. And actually, FDA um, sometimes visits different shops around the country to see how things are used post approval. So to me, that's a real-world study. And I can guarantee you that the numbers that would come out of that study will will certainly not reflect the numbers coming out of studies that have hand-picked centers with hand-picked patients. Great question.
2: And then, you know, we um, already talked a little bit about some of the the future kind of directions that things might go in terms of, you know, different materials for, you know, not requiring as much uh, antiplatelet use. Other sort of things you see in the future or that are coming down the pipe in the not so distant future?
1: I think that, um, so we talked about flow diversion. Um, the, what we consider flow diverters are the saccular aneurysms, but the intrasacular devices, web being one example, is truly a flow diverter, but it's outside the parent vessel. It's meant for bifurcation aneurysms. And I think we sort of are looking at the Gen 1 device or an early Gen device, but there will be more players in the market which are which are going to be providing endovascular intrasacular solutions for these bifurcation aneurysms, most of which are still clipped, right? So MCAs are still, um, a good number of them are clipped, at least in my practice. Um, I'll be publishing a paper looking at about 2,000 aneurysms of a single surgeon, why things are are clipped. So I think right now, probably 80% of aneurysms in the unruptured setting have a good endovascular solution. And that's across Europe and the United States. I think in the next three years, you're going to see that 20% of surgical aneurysms whittle down to about 10. Wow. Well, I still think there will be a place for surgery. It's really important to know how to do it as a surgeon who does endovascular, must maintain those skills. Um, But I think, again, that number is gonna continue to um, dwindle.
0: The pendulum continues to shift. Aggressively. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you here with us today. The time just flew by. Um, any, um, uh, last minute comments or questions that you would like to leave the audience with?
1: Well, I can't believe 30 minutes has flown by already. Uh, your questions were fantastic. It's been a pleasure to spend uh, the last 30 minutes on the CNS podcast. Um, so hope- hopefully, we relayed some controversial information, but, uh, useful information.
0: Fantastic! Thank you so much for joining us, and um, thank you, Seth, for for partnering on this uh, once thank again. You. Uh, please, uh, for the audience that's listening, please visit the podcast page on CNS.org to listen to this as well as other CNS podcasts. And we will bid you all a good night.